It's a good day. It's a good day to be with y'all. I know you just sat down, and every time I do this, I say, well, I'm going to have them say, just stay standing, but I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word again. Um, so would you stand with me? Out of respect for reading God's Word. If you want to follow along, we're going to be reading from the book of Matthew, uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 15. That will be, we'll be picking up in verse 1, be reading through verse 20, and that'll be our text for the day. Uh, so, if you'd like to follow along, I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It says this. Then Jesus was approached by Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem who asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, Why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, whoever tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is a gift committed to the temple, he does not have to honor his father. In this way, you have nullified the word of God because of your tradition. Hypocrites! Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching his doctrines human commands. Summoning the crowd, he told them, Listen and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came up and told him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense when, you, when they heard what you said? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father didn't plant will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind guide the blind, both will fall into a pit. Then Peter said, Explain this parable to us. Do you still lack understanding, he asked. Don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a person. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, slander. These are the things that defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile a person. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. All right, as you guys already know, today we're praying for uh, the persecuted church around the world. Um, so, um, things are a little bit different today, but that's good. Sometimes different is good. Um, some of you are thinking, no, I like my routine. Well, that's too bad. We'll get back to it eventually, I'm sure, but not this week. Um, but as we pray for people who are persecuted around the world, it's easy to assume, easy to think, well, the people that are persecuted, it's just those people over there. You know what I mean? Like, even as, even as we pray, we pray for those people. Does that make sense? You all tracking? Like, it's just, it's almost not real to us, right? And to some extent, that's true. I mean, certainly. Um, I've already mentioned where, where we're at. I, I'm not terribly concerned for my safety or for my job whenever I stand up and I, I share God's word with you. I'm not overly, I'm not really concerned. Now, I know that there have been some uh, in, in other near countries um, who, have, who have been imprisoned for saying some of the same things that I've said from here. But still, I'm not overly concerned about it. I really have no major concerns for my safety, for my well-being, for the well-being of my family. I'm really not overly concerned about it. Um, so, to some extent, saying, well, the people we're praying for are those people over there. Well, to some extent, that's true. To some extent, that is true. Um, but as followers of Jesus, as we've looked at today... Shouldn't we expect difficulty in this life? 
Now, I'm not trying to be a pessimist or just be all defeated because even as I read, um, uh, I was reading a book this week that was talking about how we should have incredible hope because we serve a Savior who has overcome the world. Right? We have a Savior who's power, more powerful than anything in this world. He says, all authority has been given to me. All authority belongs to Jesus. And if we're with Jesus, then what do we have to fear, right? He has all authority. So I'm not trying to be a pessimist, but Jesus even tells his disciples that in this world, you will have trouble. He tells them you'll have trouble. Now, he also tells them, take heart for I have overcome this world. But the, the thing is, we should, we, should, we should expect difficulty. Like, we should be expected Because Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. But the thing about that trouble that I find really interesting is most of the persecution of the church around the world is done in the name of God. Okay, I'm going to say that again because I think that's important. Most of the persecution coming towards the church around the world is done in the name of God. Okay, whether whether we think about Islamic extremists who are persecuting the church, they're doing that in the name of their God. Or even if we think about those who just want to snuff out Christianity because it interferes with them, they are their own gods. They're worshiping themselves, so it's done in the name of their God. Much of the persecution that the church faces is done in the name of God. Which we know is not the way things should be, but it's true. So whether we consider those who are of other religious groups who are persecuting the church, or if we think about the wolves that have come up within the church and have, are devouring the church from within, I mean, much of this opposition is done from God, even, or done in the name of God, even though it's not from God. Okay? See, the problem, the problem is that many of these, these persecutors, many of them are focused on what I'm going to call throughout this sermon here, uh, it's, they're focused on external religion. They're focused on external religion. Or if you want to say it a different way, a purely external religion. Because is there something to be said for the external? Sure, I believe it follows the internal, but we're going to get to that more here in just a minute. Um, But whenever we have a focus on a purely external religion, we have problems. See, this religion says you do this, that, and the other, and that's going to make God love you to the point that he'll, he'll be pleased with you. That's what external religion says. Do this, and God will love you enough that he'll be pleased with you. That's not the Christian faith. I want to say that very emphatically. God loves you as much as he could possibly love you. And there's nothing that you can say or do to make God love you more. God loved you so much that while you were living in absolute rebellion against him, he died for you. That's love. That's what love is. Jesus is the definition of love. He came and died for you while you were still living in rebellion against him. Before you even had an opportunity to act in God's favor... Christ was already the plan to come and die for you. Before you had an opportunity to do any of it. He loved you as much as he could. Now, one thing I want all of you to know is that nothing that you can say or do is going to make God love you more. Okay? I just believe that's true. Nothing's going to make God love you more. He loves you as much as he possibly could already. Now, because you can't make God love you on your own, um, we tend to fall into one of two camps. Either we recognize it for what it is, and then we just worship and we live a life of praise to that God, which is, I believe, the way that we should live. Or there's this temptation. There's this other temptation to say, well, I know I can't, but I still have to try. Still got to try. And we fall into this this category of, of what can I do to make God love me more? What can I do to make God happier with me? What can I do so that God will just pour out more favor on me, which may be fair? But understand, the Christian faith has never been about what you can do. 
It is not about your external, how you perform. That's not the point of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is to change you from the very core of who you are before you did anything. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the problems. Um, really, we're just going to look at two of the many problems with a purely external religion. We're going to look at two of those problems because I think that's what shows up here in this text. And, it, and I, I think without, without twisting the text too much, I think it applies to the way that we're praying for people. The way we're praying for people today. Okay, and we'll get to that more as we go. But we're going to even stop in the middle of this, and at least that's my plan. We're going to stop and we're going to pray for the persecuted church around the world because I believe that's at the heart of the gospel. So we're going to get to that. But I want to look at these two problems. These two problems with a focus on external religion. Or, if again, if you want to add that purely external, that's fine. That's fine. I'm good with that. But the first problem we find is that external religion leads to religious hypocrisy. It leads to religious hypocrisy. Verse 1, here, Jesus, he's approached by these Pharisees and the scribes, or your translation may say the teachers of the law. That's the same thing. That's what scribes were. They were teachers of the law. And it specifically says that they were from Jerusalem. Now, this guy named Jesus, this miracle-working prophet out here in the middle of nowhere from Nazareth, he started doing enough that now he's caught the attention of these folks from Jerusalem, the epicenter of the Jewish faith. They've heard of him, and they're not messing around with this guy anymore. They're sending the big dogs from Jerusalem. Okay, so let's send you up. Let's go see what they have to say. So they stop messing around. They're sending in the big guns. So they come, and it doesn't take long, and they spot an easy target, right? Jesus is here, and they, notice they don't directly attack Jesus. They notice that his disciples are doing something. So they are attacking Jesus through his followers, right? Okay, that's always a good, good plan, right? Attack the followers, not the leader. Okay, but that's what they do. So they find this target, and in verse 2 they say, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now notice that the, what they're concerned about here is the tradition of the elders. They're concerned about tradition. Now, some of y'all have good tradition. Um, uh, I'm certainly, <laughs> my parents are smiling. My family certainly has some traditions. Um, and, and most of those are good. I'm not saying they're bad. Tradition is not a bad thing. The problem here is that this tradition of the elders turns into something it wasn't meant to be. And really, as we go through this, there are several titles given to this tradition of the elders. In some places, it's called traditions of men. Here in a minute, Jesus is going to refer to it as your traditions. Um, other places, it's called traditions of the fathers. But what is this really? What is it that they're really concerned with here? This tradition, this tradition is the oral teachings, okay? This, it's the oral teachings on the law that interpreted the law into very detailed rules and regulations from leading and sometimes competing rabbis. That's a mouthful, so I'm going to read that again because I think it's important to understand what they're bringing against Jesus. Okay, They're coming to him saying that he's breaking the tradition of the elders. This tradition is the oral teachings on the law. Now notice, it's not the law itself, it's the teachings on the law. All right, So it's coming against or these teachings on the law that are interpreted into very detailed rules and regulations. And these are from leading and sometimes competing rabbis. Okay. So, I'm going to try to put this into Christian terms. Maybe, maybe this will help us understand just a little bit. Okay. This would, be, this would be like having Bible teaching, 
okay, Bible teaching, that we put into very detailed rules and regulations from leading teachers. And I just got, I've got 10 of them. I'm just going to roll through these real quick, okay? From guys like John Piper, Francis Chan, Chuck Swindoll, Billy Graham, R.C. Sproul, Alistair Begg, David Jeremiah, Rick Warren, David Platt, Tim Keller. We could keep going on some of these leading teachers. But you get the point, right? So we take these teachings from some of these leading teachers and we put them into very detailed rules and regulations. Now, do y'all see a problem with that? And saying, now you have to follow these rules and regulations. Do you see the problem? If not, I'm going to hopefully make it a little bit more clear. Okay, here's the problem. First, now we have shifted the focus, haven't we? We've shifted the focus from a focus on God's law to a focus on man's law. On man's teaching. Instead of saying, what does God say on the issue? We're saying, what does man say on the issue? We have shifted the focus. Now, is it bad to listen to good teaching? No, of course not. You guys listen to mediocre teaching just about every week. So, yeah. It's not wrong to listen to teaching. Of course not. Of course that's not a bad thing. I would encourage you to do so. But what we need to understand is man's teaching is not on the same plane of authority as God's law. Scripture trumps anybody's teaching. And if somebody's teaching contradicts what Scripture says, go with God's word, not man's. That sounds pretty simple, right? Well, you would think so, but sometimes those lines get blurred. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning, about how sometimes the lie looks a lot like the truth. We need to make sure that we know the truth so that we can identify the lie. Okay, so again, hard-hitting hard application for today, read your Bible, okay? Read your Bible. Know your Bible. Second problem with this, this idea is, here just a minute ago, I listed off ten names of prominent teachers. All those were very prominent teachers among the Christian faith. And some of those, though, have wildly different opinions regarding very important doctrines. Within those, there were several from the Reformed community, but there were some Baptists, there were some Presbyterians in there also. Wildly different opinions on important doctrines. Okay, now, just think about that for a moment. Who do you listen to? If we're going to put this into detailed rules and regulations, which one do you listen to? Is one right and one wrong? Sometimes, yes, I believe that's true. But who do you listen to? See, these guys were so focused on the tradition of the elders that was compiled with leading and sometimes competing rabbis. You can't possibly follow them all. It would be impossible for you to follow all the teachings of all ten of those because sometimes they contradict one another. You just can't. So, by putting those on the same point as Scripture, not only are they saying that what the teachers have to say is important as Scripture, but also you're going to confuse everybody because you can't follow all of it. It's impossible. So, what's the problem? Well, the specific problem at hand here is the problem of hand washing. Now, half of you all in the room, especially you men, you're in trouble right now. Okay? Because we're talking about hand washing. All right? Nobody thinks that's funny? Not even a little bit? I know some of you are like clean freaks, like wash your hands after you go to the bathroom, right? And some of you are like, so what? No big deal. <laughs> I'm not saying which camp I'm in. So anyway, the problem is it's not just hand washing that's, that's here, okay? Now remember, this is the first century, so hygiene standards aren't what they are today. Okay, it's not like they could go to the bathroom, they got antibacterial soap, or they're walking by the, the, the coffee bar and they're like, okay, well pump some of the hand sanitizers you go by. That's not what's happening here. Okay, that's not what they're talking about. This is first century, so we're talking about first century standards of hygiene. See, the problem that these Pharisees and these scribes have is not so much, well, you just didn't wash your hands after, or before you eat. No, the problem they have was ceremonial 
ceremonial cleanliness. See, Mark actually helps us understand that. That's why this is up here. Mark chapter 7, verses 2 through 3, it says, They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. See, it had to do with ceremonial cleanliness, not just like, hey, you guys are gross. Okay, so how does Jesus respond to this? He doesn't respond by directly defending his disciples, does he? No, instead he launches a counterattack, which I think is amazing. Jesus is here from some of these Pharisees and these scribes from Jerusalem who are coming up, and now Jesus isn't back. Not only is he not backing down from them, he's attacking them. He's going on the offensive. So he says in verse 3, he says, They might be breaking your tradition, but you break God's command because of your tradition. They're breaking your tradition. You're breaking God's command. And it's all because of your tradition. Then he explains in verse 4 that they allowed a person to dishonor their father and mother by withholding financial aid from them by saying that it was already committed to the temple. Now, basically what they've done is they put a religious gloss on their sin. They're saying, well, yeah, I know that we're not really honoring our father and mother, but we're doing it in the name of religion, so it's good, right? Right? I mean, that's what they say. They say, look, it's all for God. All the while, they're neglecting their responsibility to their family. Now, Jesus... Jesus taught a priority of service also, didn't he? Um, he says, you know, if you, you know, your family's against you, then, well, you follow Jesus anyway. So is there still an issue there? Like, is he speaking out of both sides of his mouth? Uh, is he being hypocritical himself? I think the answer is no, he's not. Um, because while these traditions that they're teaching can't take precedence over the law, Jesus already fulfilled the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. So can he take precedence over the law? Yes. But not only that. Here, Jesus is dealing with a son who's acting against his family. In other cases where Jesus says, if you've got to choose family or Jesus, it's the family acting against the disciple. Okay, So it's not really the same thing. But then Jesus shows that the root of the problem, if you go to verse 7, he finds that the root of the problem is that these Pharisees and their, these teachers, they are in the same line as those hypocrites of Isaiah's time. And he flat out calls them hypocrites. He says, you guys are being hypocritical. They claim to honor God. With all their words, with everything they were doing, they were claiming to honor God. But at the core, they were only putting on a religious show to look good. It was empty. Didn't really have anything to it. D.A. Carson says it this way. He says, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have displaced a true religion of the heart, of the entire personality and will with a religion of form. They've substituted a religion of heart for a religious of form. We can just kind of plug it in and we're all good. See, it's really easy to look at this, though, and be like, man, these Pharisees were boneheads. And you're right. See, the problem with that thinking is oftentimes we're the Pharisees. Oftentimes we're the scribes. And I'll just show you. Oftentimes we claim to be changed by the gospel. We're claimed to be changed by Jesus. All the while, we just don't care about what Jesus cared about. Um. We clean ourselves up on the outside, right? We, we do a really good job. We, are, we, we make great custodians because we are really good about cleaning ourselves up. We can clean ourselves up on the outside. We dress nicer. We go to church on a Sunday morning. We say everything's all good and everything is perfect. And we claim to be faithful while we still see that there are those who die and are going to be separated from God in a, for eternity in a place that we call hell. We just don't care. Okay, I'll say it differently. Oftentimes, I don't care. Uh, I'll, I'll be the poster child for that. 
I say, I'm changed. I say, everything's good. I say, I love what God loves. He's changed my heart. All that's good. All the while, I know that there are those around me, those who are close to me, who I interact with often, who I know do not have faith in Jesus, who are destined for hell apart from that grace. And I just don't do anything about it. I just don't care. Isn't that, isn't that the same hypocrisy? Maybe it's a different subject, but it's still hypocrisy. It's the same problem that the Pharisees had, that they said they were religious all the while they didn't act like it. All the while their heart was far from God. Like, do we not get it? See, it's either that, or we see that there are brothers or sisters, Christians all around the world, who are being persecuted. And we don't want to take 15 minutes out of our day to stop and pray that the all-powerful God of the universe would intercede for them, would act on their behalf. Is it because we don't think he can or because we just don't care about him? See, I think James, uh, the book of James, helps us a little bit here. James chapter 1, verse 27, it says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. Okay, so we were looking at the Pharisees. They do not have pure and undefiled religion, right? They're so focused on the tradition of the elders. They're hypocritical. They're not really focusing on the heart of the problem. But James says, here is the pure and undefiled religion. Here's what it really is. He says it's to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So is there an external component? Sure there is. Keep oneself unstained from the world. Sure, there's an external component. But to look after orphans and widows, to care for people, to actually care about others. Do we care about them? Because if not, then we have a problem at the very heart of things. We are acting as hypocritical as these Pharisees. See, oftentimes I don't think we get it. And again, I'll, I'll be the poster child for this because oftentimes my heart is far from this. Like, yeah, I know there are people. Um, one of the things we do in our family time of worship every night is we pray for unreached people groups around the world. And there's an app, so it's not like I know all these off the top of my head. No, there's an app that we use that tells us about an unreached people group around the world. So we pray for these people, and oftentimes the reason they're unreached is because there is persecution against them if they come to faith in Jesus. If they claim Jesus, there is persecution. So that's why they're unreached. Nobody wants to share the gospel there because it's hard. That's why they're unreached. If it was easy, everybody would go. But it's not. It's hard. But see, oftentimes we pray for them, and we're like, God, just soften their hearts so they might come to know you. These people are dying or being imprisoned because they want to know Jesus. The question then is, do we really care, or are we like the Pharisees who don't really have a changed heart? Which, which are we? Are we the ones who just don't care? Or, what's the problem? Like, I don't, I don't get it. If we're not praying for them, if we're not at, like, I'm not saying the prayer is a small thing, but if we aren't at least praying for them, like, why? Why? So I think it would be appropriate to stop and pray right now. I think this would be a good time to do that. Um, I, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to say that we need to pray for these people and then not stop and pray for these people. So let's just, let's pray. Uh, Lord, God, I, I pray that you would open our eyes, uh, that you would change our hearts. Lord, and the reason I say that you would, we ask that you would open our eyes is because Oftentimes we're blinded to, to many things, whether that's your, your infinite power. God, we, we look at the persecuted brothers and sisters and we think, well, there's nothing that can be done. There's such opposition. Um, Lord, and really what that is is a lack of faith in who you are. So, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see your tremendous power. God, that we would trust that you have all authority. 
Not like there's anything that can overcome you, Lord. Give us faith to be like the early church that was willing to die, knowing that even in death they had hope of life. Um, Lord, so I pray that you would open our eyes so that we could see your power. Lord, but I also pray that you would change our hearts and open our eyes so that we could see hurting brothers and sisters around the world and we might intercede for them. That we might come to you. God, I pray that you would change our hearts so that we care. We care enough to stop and to pray and to plead with you for, for safety, um, for boldness, for that same hope that we claim to have. Um, Lord, so open our eyes, change our hearts. Let us love what you love. Let us care about what you care about. Um, Father, and I pray that you would work. And I, I don't want to just stop there. I know, many have, I know many have already prayed for persecutors. And Lord, I want to echo that. Um, as Quinn prayed just a few moments ago about one of the greatest persecutors of the early church. His name was Paul. And you used him as one of your greatest ambassadors. Lord, let us, let us have a heart for the persecutors also. God, change our hearts so that we might see what you care about. Um, Lord, and I pray that we wouldn't stop there, but we would actually put into action what we claim to believe. Both as we pray for them, but then as we look and we see persecuted brothers and sisters, um, Lord, I pray that we would have a heart, a desire to reach out to them, um, to find ways to support them, to give them aid in any way we can. Um, So, Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts. Let us love what you love. Um, Father, we need you. Um, We need you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I hope you see the hypocrisy of these religious leaders who were so focused on this external religion. Um, I hope you see their hypocrisy as they claimed to be honoring God all the while they were neglecting his law, neglecting what he's commanded, neglecting what he said. Okay, we cannot fall into that same trap. Second thing that we find, second problem we find here is that external religion leads us away from God. It leads us away from God. Here, Jesus, if we get to verse 10, Jesus shifts from his, his attention from the Pharisees and the scribes now to the crowds. Okay, not only does he shift his attention, he sees this as an opportunity and he it says that he summons the crowds. So he draws people to himself because he's about to make a point. And then he begins to explain the very principle he is rebuking the Pharisees for missing. He's like, here's these religious people over here. Yeah, sure. They missed the point, but you all can get it. So come on. I want you to hear this. That's what Jesus is saying to them. So he summons this crowd to himself. And in verse 11, he says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles the person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles the person. In other words, a failure to wash your hands after you go to the bathroom, it might be gross, but it's not sinful. He says, that's not the problem at hand here. What Jesus is concerned with is much bigger than that. It's bigger than that. It's not simple conformity to the established rules. It's something far greater. He's concerned about an ethic that begins at the very core of the person. At the very innermost part of who we are. A transformation that needs to take place there. But even Jesus' closest disciples, they don't get it at first. So just, you know, take a little comfort in that. If if you've missed it, like that's been me at times. Like I I think I know it, but I know it on a very superficial external level. Even Jesus' disciples didn't get it the first time he said it. So in verse 12, it tells us that they were still concerned with what the Pharisees thought and that they... The Pharisees took offense to Jesus, so they didn't get it. Um, Jesus, he replies then in verse 13. 
He says, every plant that my heavenly father didn't plant will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind guide the blind, both will fall into a pit. In other words, they're saying things that just aren't true. And if they continue to guide people, they're going to lead them astray. And everybody, all of them, both those that they're leading and the leaders themselves are going to wind up in the pit. So he says, he says, no, we need something different. Leave them alone. We're going to lead people a different direction. And Jesus here, he uses uh, two really pretty common Jewish metaphors. First is the uprooted plant. If you go back to the Old Testament, as you read through, you're going to see that there's this repeated picture of God's garden, of this garden that God's planting. Um, And he's putting plants there, and if there's a worthless plant, what does God do with that plant? He uproots it, and he either throws it away or he burns it. One or the other. Those are the images, images that are used in the Old Testament. And Jesus here says, those are these Pharisees. They don't get it. Clearly they don't get it, because if their hearts were really changed they would see the fulfillment of the law that they're claiming to be teaching. And who's that fulfillment? It's Jesus. They would see it. They would get it. He says, that's these Pharisees. They clearly don't get it because their hearts are unchanged. And in the end, they're going to be weeded out, depending on the particular passage, either burned or trampled. And the second image that's used here are these blind guides. See, Jewish teachers in the first century, they considered themselves guides to the blind. Okay, And the reason for that is because they had the law. And they were interpreters of the law. So they saw themselves as guides to those who didn't have the law. Okay? And Jesus says, they really don't get it either. They're blind guides. And they're trying to guide these other blind people. What happens whenever somebody who can't see is guiding somebody else who can't see? Well, he says they both fall into a pit. It does not end well. You know, I was here a while back with some of our youth, and we were playing a a game here. It was after dark, and they turned all the lights off, and we're running around. Just so you know, I was blind in this room. It's not a good idea. Um, There are chairs. They hurt when you run into them. They may may be soft right now, but, boy, you hit them while you're walking. It doesn't feel good. Um, I think Hunter ran into a wall. But, anyway, that's neither here nor there. Everybody's okay. Nobody was seriously injured. The point is, if you can't see, why would you try to lead somebody else? They didn't get it either, so it's not good for either one. And Jesus uses both those pictures. But Peter, poor, poor Peter, he still didn't get it. Still doesn't understand. Verse 15, he asked for an explanation. First of all, give Peter a little bit of credit. He knew he didn't know, and he knew who to ask for an explanation. So he asks, and Jesus, Jesus is gracious enough to explain to the one who asks. So he tells Peter, and presumably the rest of the disciples, that what goes into the mouth ends up being eliminated, right? It passes to the stomach and then it's eliminated. That's a very nice gloss on the, on the Greek. The Greek actually says it goes into the stomach, then it's cast into the latrine. In other words, it goes down the toilet. Y'all tracking? He says it's garbage. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it too. So there you go. By the way, the Bible's fun. My kids thought that was hilarious whenever I told them that was in the Bible. Um, anyway, you all think it's funny too, right? Come on. That's in the Bible. Um, anyway, but Jesus says, look, what goes into the mouth winds up being eliminated. It's not permanent. That comes out at some point. But the things that come out of the mouth, the words you say, and in the larger picture, the things you do, these things are a reflection of the heart. And now the heart, we're not talking about the organ that pumps blood. You all know that, right? We're talking about the innermost part of who you are, like the very core of your being. That's what Jesus is talking about whenever he says it's a problem of the heart. The very core of who you are. He says that's where the problem lies. And everything that you say and everything that you do, it reflects what's in like the innermost person. Like in the very core of who you are. 
And then he gives these seven different things um, that come from the heart that defile a person, right? And I'm not gonna, I don't think there's a need to go through each one and dissect them. I think that would be missing the point. Because you should probably get the point just from reading through the list. Like bad things come from the very core of who you are. It's not good stuff. He says the point is that what a person is necessarily affects what he says and what he does. What a person is will affect what he says and what he does. So, does external does the external stuff matter? The answer is yes, it does. But is that going to save you? The answer is no. The reason the external matters is because is because the external reflects the internal. Now, just so you know, people are good at faking it for a time. I know because I've been the person faking it for a time. I've been that guy. I've tried to fake it, and I've tried to cover everything up, make the external look real good so people would believe the internal was good. All the while, I knew the death that was in my own heart. Look, we're really good at cleaning up and trying to fake it for a little while. But in the end, the internal is really going to lead, it's going to reveal the defilement that we really have. See, obedience isn't what makes a person pure or good. Instead, a new heart leads to a transformed life. When God, through grace, uh, through the grace that Jesus brought us, cleanses us, then we can see the fruit in a life that's been changed. But it's only after the internal's really been changed. See, oftentimes we try to deal with the external. And I'm guilty of that too. I talk to people about the problems they're having externally. Um, That's part of my job, which I'm fine with. But see, the thing is, it's not the external that's the problem. Those might be a problem, but they're really a symptom of the bigger problem. See, I think about it like this. It, It may be a cancer I'm not trying to pick on that because there's like a bajillion different kinds of cancer, so I'm not trying to open up any, any wounds or anything or have bad memories of anything, but I think about it like that. Okay, If, if we had some, some kind of disease, some kind of cancer that was popping up with different lesions, let's just say lesions on the skin, okay, and we found a way to take care of your skin, you're all better, right? No, because there's still the larger disease inside that's eating, that's killing a person. See, what we need to deal with is the root, the real problem, the thing that's inside that's destroying a person. And that's their rebellion against God. That's their sin that's causing problems. We need to deal with the root. See, that's where we miss it. We encourage people to clean up. And there's reason for that. Certainly, we want people's lives to reflect a change. Certainly, we want that. So we mean well. But oftentimes we accept a change on the outside, and we're just good with that. Jesus wasn't. Jesus wasn't. D.A. Carson says this. He says, Jesus is insisting that true religion must deal with the nature of a man, not with mere externals. If we're going to talk about true religion, true Christianity, it deals with the very nature of who we are, the very core of who we are. And if we settle for anything less, we're being hypocritical Pharisees. We need to see people change from the inside out. External religion leads to religious hypocrisy and ultimately leads away from God. So what? So, we can go through the motions all we want, but the truth is that purely external faith is not a saving faith. It's just not. Jesus says that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that they're going to be uprooted and cast out, not because they didn't know the law, because they certainly knew it, but because it didn't change them to the very core of who they were. Our goal should be to ensure that few have that attitude, that few think that way. Let's just clean it up on the outside and we'll be good. 
Um, there's this beautiful illustration. I just want to bring this illustration and then I'll try to wrap it up. But there's this beautiful illustration. Um, how many of you all have read the Chronicles of Narnia? Like there's a whole series, right? So there's like seven books in this Chronicles of Narnia that C.S. Lewis wrote. Um, and I was reading this here a while back and this is an amazing picture. So um, in the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And if you all read it, you, you might get it. You might know where I'm going already. Um, but there's, there's this boy named Eustace, okay, who winds up traveling to this mythical land of Narnia. And while he's here, he's this nasty kid. Like, he's selfish. He's, he's arrogant. He's just, he's what I would call a punk. So he shows up here, and he's just this nasty kid. They wind up on this island, and he finds this treasure, and he lays down. And he falls asleep on this treasure. And whenever he wakes up, he realizes, I've been turned into a dragon, this nasty dragon. And throughout a whole series of things, he winds up back with the same people, but still a dragon. And there's this, there's this scene here, while dragon Eustace is led away by Aslan. And throughout the, throughout the series, Aslan represents Jesus. Okay, So he's led away from the group by Jesus, and he says, well, in order to be changed back into a boy, you need to get into the pool and wash. And he says, but first, you have to take your, your, your skin off. You have to take that off. So here, he's this dragon. So he starts scratching, and much like a snake loses its skin, he scratches off that first layer. And he, said, he says it felt good for a moment. I scratched off that first layer. But the problem is, underneath that first layer, there was more dragon scales. He says, well, I'll just take off the next layer. So he scratches and he scratches and he bites and he claws and he takes off the next layer. And he does this again and again and again. And every time he finds more scales underneath. It's not until, it's not until Aslan looks at him and says, I'll have to undress you then. And he sinks his teeth into this dragon flesh and rips it off so that this boy, Eustace, turns back into a boy. By the way, beautiful illustration. Right afterwards, he's thrown into some water. So, um, awesome picture of baptism. But, uh, <clears throat> but I think that point, like that illustration, is amazing. And C.S. Lewis is brilliant. I'm, I mean, just far smarter than I'll ever dream of being. But he's, he's hit something. He's hit something that is incredibly important. And the first thing is that we need Jesus if we're ever going to truly change. See, we can be like the Pharisees and we can follow some external regulations. We can, we can scratch off that outside layer. We can clean up a little bit on the outside. And we can think, okay, well, we're getting closer. We're getting closer to the center. We're getting closer to being perfect. We're getting closer to be the, what we need to be. But any change apart from what Aslan did in the book and any change apart from what we have in Jesus, any change apart from that is not good enough. It's a waste of time. It's not going to be sufficient. It's just going to lead to more and more dead religion away from the God that we strive to get to. It's not going to be enough. What we need is we need a Savior who's going to come and sink his teeth into us and actually rip the dead flesh off of us so that we can be alive again. That's what we need. Second thing, though, that Lewis picks up on here is, is amazing. Um, he picks up on the fact that while a person is justified by God at the moment that they are saved, uh, there is an ongoing aspect to, to salvation. There is. In this same picture, after, after this boy returns to a boy, um, Lewis writes this. He said it would be nice and fairly true to say that from that time on, from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice. This last line, I thought, that was amazing. The cure had begun. The cure had begun. See, what Lewis has picked up on is while Eustace was changed. He was changed by Aslan, just much like we are saved by Jesus at the moment of salvation. There is an ongoing process. There is this ongoing change that occurs. And the external will follow the internal. It may take time and it will take, take years and years. Actually, it will take your lifetime. 
But we will see the change slowly, slowly as we follow after our Savior. We need to be continually growing towards Jesus. And whenever we come to the saving knowledge of who Jesus is, whenever he changes us to the very core of who we are, then we'll care for what he cares for. It changes us. Um, To steal from Ezekiel, he'll remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. He changes our heart. So one application for this text today, um, care for those in need. That's pretty simple. That's what God cares for. He cared for the most needy. That was us. He cared for us. And if we're following after our Savior, we'll care for those who are in need. Today, um, we're doing that by praying for the persecuted church around the world. But I hope that doesn't end today. Um, The point is, if you claim to follow Jesus, follow Jesus. Not just with the externals, but with the very core of who you are, the very heart of who you are. Ask him to come and change you to be more like him. That's what we need today. It's not simple external religion. It's a change at the very core of our being. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. Lord, I pray, I pray that it would be a blessing to us. Uh, Lord, that we might follow you more faithfully. That we might love you more deeply. Um, Lord, all because you're transforming us from the inside out. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be satisfied with simply cleaning things up on the outside, this external religion. But instead, Lord, I pray that we would long for, that we would desire whatever it takes so that we might be changed at the very core. So, Lord, come and do what only you can do, what we can't do on our own. Save us from our sin. Change our hearts. Let us know you, not only as our Savior, but also as our Lord as we follow you for the rest of our lives. So, Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.